After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into that territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And likewise, I will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out all the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, nor Tineach and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or in the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Medigo in its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thanks so much for reading that for us, Glenn. Great job. Not an easy passage to read, a lot of strange names, and frankly, a strange story, and so I appreciate you being willing to, to lead us in that. Uh, well, good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to have you here. Uh, my name is Jonathan, and I have the privilege of opening up uh, the Word of God with and for you today. And so if you have your Bibles, if you could turn to Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1, and if you have your Bible, you're going to want to uh, look at that today because we're going to look at other verses as well that we didn't have read for us. As you can tell, it was a rather long text that we worked through this morning, but we left out a lot of verses. Um, we just wanted to kind of emphasize the highlights of what's going on in this text, and if you've been around disciples for any length of time, you know that our pattern is generally to go um, through each book at a time, and we kind of alternate between Old and New Testament and within genres within the Old and the New Testament so that we're getting a holistic picture of God's word. So we're told explicitly that the word of God is, is profitable, that it's good for all sorts of things in our life, for doctrine and for correction and for instruction and in righteousness, that there is no word, a jot or tittle is the language that the Bible itself uses. There is nothing in scripture that is of not of value to us in some way or another. And that includes books like Judges, 
ones that are strange to read. They have unusual stories in them. They're difficult to understand at times. There's a lot of things historically uh, and literarily that are going on in these texts that we kind of have to unpack and understand a little bit. But just as we talked about last week, as we were finishing up the book of 1 John, we discussed the idea that even though that book was written nearly 2,000 years ago, it is just as as applicable for us today. And this morning, as we begin this new series working through the book of Judges, we're going to discover that in this book that is 3,000 years old, it likewise has the ability to, to provide wisdom and insight into the human experience. It reveals the essence of the brokenness and the nature of mankind, our desperate need for the intervention of a Savior, one who cares for us and loves us and pursues us and calls us to himself, and a God who ultimately is a faithful, faithful, covenant-keeping God. But in stories like the one that we just heard read for us, that truth may not be obvious, because Judges, in many ways, reads like a dark novel. I mean, I don't know how many passages of Scripture talk about a king's thumbs and big toes being cut off, but I'm willing to bet it's not many. And that's the story that we had in front of us this morning. It recounts in this book all kinds of conquests and violence and intrigue and corruption and immorality, story after story. And so in one sense, it's very intriguing and it's very attractive to read only because it is so so twisted in a sense. And yet at the same time, there's this underlying thread that runs through the book about who God is, his faithfulness to his people, despite their own unfaithfulness to him. And as one commentator pointed out about this book, even the heroes themselves, the judges that we're going to come to know over the coming weeks, become increasingly flawed and failing. There's actually a a decrease in the morality of God's people that you can see and that you can track throughout the course of this book. They get further and further and further away from who God has called them to be and from what it is that he's called them to. And at the root of all of this moral failure that we're going to explore over the coming weeks, we see the people of God at best half-heartedly obeying God's instruction and in the process compromising their own beliefs and at worst outright denying and rebelling against God, a God who had proven himself to them in unbelievable ways. Because to understand this within the context of the history of Israel, as we discover right at the outset in verse 1, the events of the book of Judges take place immediately upon the death of of their great leader, Joshua. If you remember the story, about a generation earlier, the Israelites, the people of God, had been in slavery to the Egyptians. And God, through, through means that nobody would have predicted and nobody would have expected, calls up the most unusual character to lead the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt. He calls a man named Moses. And what's unique about him is that he wasn't a charismatic individual. He wasn't a powerful appearing leader. He wasn't, he wasn't somebody who was really great at speaking or leading a crowd. But what he did was respond faithfully to what God had ultimately called him to do. And God uses the most unexpected person in that case to lead the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt. And he does so in a manner that in and of itself is unusual. God sends 10 unique plagues into the land of Egypt and over the course of those plagues reveals his own power even as Pharaoh's heart continues to be hardened towards what he has been told is God's intention for his own people. 
Ultimately, Pharaoh says, fine, get out and leave this country. The children of Israel leave Egypt. They make their way into the, to the Red Sea where the, where the Jordan itself is parted in front of them. Physically, the water is spread apart so that they can walk across in the middle on dry ground. And just as that last Israelite steps onto the shore of the other side, as the armies of Egypt are chasing them down and hunting them down, the water collapses back in on itself, destroying Pharaoh's army. As if that wasn't enough, these very same people are then led by the presence of God in their midst. A cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night is the language that the Bible uses. They had the physical presence of the Almighty God in and among them. God himself was leading these people into this strange new land. They're in the middle of a desert and they don't have food. And so God miraculously begins to drop bread called manna from the air. And he only gives them enough for each day. Because at every point in the way, what God is trying to communicate to his people is that they have, they have the ability to depend on him for everything that they could possibly need. When they find themselves thirsty and far away from any water, God uses Moses and ultimately in a miraculous way delivers all of the water they could possibly need from a rock. In other words, these people have no reason, humanly speaking or spiritually speaking, to doubt the goodness and the grace of God. All they've ever seen is his faithfulness. All they've ever seen is his deliverance. All they've ever seen is him, is him use the most unexpected means and the most unexpected people to bring about his own goodwill and his own good pleasure. And yet they continue to doubt and to struggle. So much so that Moses, their leader, finally in one day reacts out of frustration to the people's actions and to the place in which he finds himself. He disobeys the instruction of God and God says, because of your disobedience, you're not going to be allowed to enter into the promised land. He raises up Joshua to lead the people through the wilderness for 40 years. And for 40 years, in spectacular fashion, God continues to provide for these faithless people. And now, as we find in the opening of the book, they've entered into Canaan. They've entered into the promised land that God had given them. They've found themselves in the place that God had ultimately called them to begin their conquest. And finally, after experiencing God's provision in unexplainable, miraculous means, the Israelites have entered this land to begin their conquest. And what we find out is that even the judges who were installed to help direct and lead these increasingly faithless people back to the God who had cared for them grow successively worse in their own morals and more ineffective in their own leadership. You see, these were a people who were in the middle of spiritual and societal decline. And after 3,000 years, modern people like us like to think that we've evolved a little bit. We like to think that we've figured some things out, that we've moved beyond the antiquities of days gone past, that we've come into a new era, that we understand a bit better, that we're a bit more enlightened, that by virtue of our scientific understanding and our technological advancements and our human rights advocacy and progressive policies, we're better off societally, that we've moved past the stunted worldview of an ancient and backward people. We are guilty of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. That we look back at everyone who came before us and we presume that they were foolish, 
that they didn't understand anything, that they were backward, and that if only they understood what we understand, they would have been better off. But the very same issues that had plagued the people of Israel some 3,000 years ago still plague us today. And I know that because of what we are ultimately told by the author of the book of Judges in chapter 21, where he says in his description of this time, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We live in a time where, if anything, we've simply used our scientific advancements and our supposed enlightenment to facilitate the very same attitude for which the Israelites were condemned. We have viewed it as a societal advancement and a personal moral achievement to try to entitle everyone to live as they desire to live. And societally, we've created a motivation in which people are, people are encouraged to accept everyone's individual beliefs and never to stand in opposition. And that truth speaks to a failing of the human condition without the intervention and the grace of God. That if we don't have God's intervening grace, his sovereign care, his hand of correction and enlightenment in a true sense of the word, where where he's bringing light into the souls of men and women to understand revealed truth from scripture, that we are hopeless. It reminds us, as one writer said, that whatever controls us really is our God. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves, says this author. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. And so the book of Judges is given to show us that there can only be one true hero of the story, that there can only be one Lord worth serving, that every other Lord in our life is really an idol that we will inevitably serve and that will be unable to grant us what we truly need that essentially every sin that is known to mankind, every sin with which we struggle, and every ungodly desire that propels and drives us can be categorized into this sort of idolatry. They're what Eric Geiger refers to as the four root idols, comfort, power, control, and approval. And if you look at your life and you look at the sins with which you struggle and the things with which you struggle, you can likely categorize each of those sins under one of those four headings. He describes power as being a longing for influence or recognition. I want to be able to exert influence, exert force, have my way, have my will, or I want recognition from people for the sort of leadership that I've provided, for the sort of things that I've accomplished. I want people to recognize who I am. And in that, I'll find my meaning and my purpose and my value. Others are motivated by control, which according to Geiger is a longing to have everything go according to my plan. This sort of person hates unpredictability. They hate things that are out of their control and outside of their understanding. They hate the unknown. And so the desire becomes to control every single individual aspect of their lives to ensure that things go in the direction that they want them to go. He continues by saying some are driven by comfort, simply a longing for pleasure. 
that there are all sorts of people who pat themselves on the back because maybe they don't crave wealth and they don't crave power and they don't crave those sorts of things, but what they want, what their God ultimately is, what the Lord of their life is, is simply comfort. I don't want inconvenience and I don't want pain. And as long as I don't have those two things, I'll be just fine. And finally, there are people who crave approval, a longing to be accepted or desired. I just want to be part of things. I don't want to be the outsider. Or conversely, I want people to desire me in whatever sense that may play itself out. And then there are those of us who likely exhibit each of those idols in our lives. We can't decide between idols, so we choose all of them. And that, as Martin Luther said, is the sin underneath all our sins. The sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent, said Luther, that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. And that is ultimately what drives the struggling people of God throughout the book of Judges. It's the sin underneath the sin for them. They didn't trust the goodness and the grace and the providence of God, though they had seen it in immeasurable ways in their lives. And we could ask the question of these people, how much more does God need to do for you in order for you to trust him? Look at all the ways he's provided for you. And frankly, look at the consequences of what happened when you didn't trust his providence and his grace and his goodness. You wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and even then God didn't abandon you. Even then he provided for you. And so we might be tempted to look at these people with some sense of arrogance. How foolish, how silly. If I had seen water come out of a rock and bread fall from the sky, certainly I would trust God. And yet these people give evidence of the fact that the human heart is self-deceived, broken and twisted. As we said in our confession this morning, or rather in our assurance of pardon this morning, as a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him, for he knows how we were made. He remembers that we are dust. That he is so loving and gracious to quote Luther, that he continues to extend mercy and grace even to his failing and forgetful, forgetful people. And in so doing, he alone reserves, receives rather the worship and the glory that he's due. So with all of that in mind, let's look at verse two and the beginning of the story. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Now remember, as we go into the story, that the societal organization of the nation of Israel at this time is broken up by tribes. And Judges focuses on nine of the tribes in particular. And initially, this story starts off on a good foot. Like it seems like things are actually going pretty well for these people. God comes to Judah and he gives us instruction. He says, go into the land, fight against the Canaanites, drive them out, take the land back that I have promised for you, the land that I've reserved for you. This is the same land that had been promised that would be reserved for the descendants of Abraham hundreds of years before. 
And so he says, I want you to go into this land. And the assurance that Judah is given from the mouth of God is, I have already given the land into your hand. God is saying the battle is already finished in essence. You just need to trust my providence and trust my goodness. Trust that I'm going to work all these things out. I've already given it to you. Now just go fight the battle. Victory is assured. Go into the land, cast out the Canaanites, take back what I've rightfully set aside for you. In other words, the only responsibility that the tribe of Judah specifically and the nation of Israel broadly had was to listen and to obey. And interestingly, the men of Judah, upon hearing this, went to their brothers in the tribe of Simeon and said, would you come with us to fight? Come with us to fight these people and we will go with you in the land that God has given you to help you fight. Now there's all kinds of differing opinions at this point from different commentators as to what exactly is going on here. Some commentators suggest at this point that this was actually an act of cowardice on the part of Judah. That they had been given the instruction, they'd been given the promise, And it was as if they didn't trust the promise of God, so they gathered their brothers from the tribe of Simeon and they went into battle with them. That they were trying to hedge because they didn't quite trust that God was going to be able to provide all these things. And certainly that may be a fair interpretation. But but Matthew Henry points out something in his commentary that I think is interesting. He says that the strongest should not despise, but desire the assistance even of those that are weaker is what's being demonstrated in this passage. Judah was the most considerable, the largest, the most powerful of all the tribes, and Simeon the least considerable, the smallest, the the least influence. And yet Judah begs Simeon's friendship and prays an aid from him. And Matthew Henry adds his own commentary to this idea by saying, the head cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you, for we are members one of another. And in saying that, what Henry ultimately is indicating is that one of the themes that we see coming up over and over and over again in this book is that as the people of God drifted from him in obedience, their unity with one another diminished as well. What they had in common across their tribal lines even, was not just blood relation. But what they had in common was the God that they knew and the God that they served. And for as long as they kept their eyes on God, they had unity with their brothers as well. But the moment that they took their eyes off of God, they began to act autonomously and they began to suffer the consequences of that independence. And the lesson for us, at least to some extent or another, is that our tendency is towards factionalism. We like people who think like us and look like us and act like us. And yet for the Christian, there ought to be a sense in which the people of God are unified by their belief and their trust and their dependence on God. That though we may have different opinions on various topics from other believing brothers and sisters, either in different churches or different denominations, there ought to be in some sense or another, for those that hold orthodox faith in God, there ought to be a sense of family, a sense of unity, a sense of relationship and belonging. And as these tribes began to function more and more autonomously, they drifted more and more towards disobedience, towards their own ends. And in doing so, were less effective in carrying out the instruction of God. So I think the example of Judah in this text actually demonstrates that God is not impressed by numbers. He wasn't impressed by the number of people who were part of the tribe of Judah or the influence they exerted or the power that they had. 
No, he actually rewarded the sense that they looked to this lesser tribe, in fact, the least of all the tribes, to come with them in this expedition. And so they experienced this great initial success. They push the Canaanites out of this particular area of the land. They capture Adonai Bezek, the king of this Canaanite tribe. And notice what it says in verse six, because this is where we come across our first unusual statement in the book of Judges. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Now this is a brutal moment in the story of this book where judged by any sort of modern standards, the behavior of the Israelites seems barbaric. But as one commentator pointed out, one of the people who didn't seem to think this was barbaric was Adonai Bezek himself. The man to whom this is done actually says, yeah, this seems about right. God has repaid me for everything that I've done. He says, I've done this very same thing to 70 different kings. All of these tribal villages that he had conquered, all of the regions around him that Adonai Bezek had conquered, he had brought in their kings, cut off their big toes and their thumbs, and made them beg for scraps at his table to show his own dominance, to show their subservience, to show his own power. And in the same brutal fashion, Adonai Bezek now experiences the same thing at the hands of the Israelites. And who does he reference as the cause of all this? He says, I've been repaid by God himself. He actually recognizes, recognizes this as God's retribution for his own violent actions. And all of this, as modern people, kind of makes us recoil. Wait a minute, I thought this was the God of grace. What's going on in this text? And I think the idea is summed up well by Dale Ralph Davis, who in his commentary said this, the motivation for driving out Canaanites was not pragmatic. In other words, this wasn't pure military conquest. Rather, it was spiritual. Yahweh had warned through Moses, do not let those people live in your country. If you do, they will make you sin against me. If you worship their gods, it will be a fatal trap for you. Remaining Canaanites would not be so much a military threat as a spiritual cancer. And that is exactly what ends up happening throughout the book of Judges. You see, God's concern for his people then and now is that they would remain faithful to him. That we wouldn't be drawn away by the idols of the people that are around us. And for that reason, God had said, listen, if you don't drive out these Canaanites from the land I've given you, what's going to happen is you're going to end up marrying them. You're going to end up having families with them. Your identity inevitably is going to be lost and you're going to begin worshiping their gods. He was giving them a warning for their own benefit of how they should handle this issue. In other words, a failure to obey God in these practical matters was going to lead to their spiritual peril. And unfortunately for the Israelites, they didn't continue to trust God's provision and power. They didn't believe that God could actually deliver into their hands the people that they were on conquest against, that he could deliver them the lands that he had already guaranteed them. They didn't believe he was going to do it despite everything they knew about him. 
And instead, what did they do? Exactly what Luther warned about. They didn't trust the love and grace of God. They took matters into their own hands. We'll figure it out our own way. And I want you to notice the decline that we're shown, even in this opening chapter. Some of these verses are in the printed passage you received this morning. Some of them are outside of it, but I'll begin reading in Judges chapter 1, verse 19, which says this. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ablim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Listen to this. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subjected to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Aleb or of Asib or of Halba or of Afik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan, it's a tribe of Israel, back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Herez, in Aijalon, and in Shabim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. Now why do we read all of these strange words and all of this repetitive theme? Because you can almost hear the disappointment and the intensity of the author as time and time and time again he says they did not drive out the Canaanites. They did not drive out the Canaanites. The tribes had been promised by God the deliverance of this land into their hands. They had been shown covenant faithfulness at this point for over a millennia. They had seen God's hand move in unbelievable ways. They'd been provided for and delivered miraculously. They'd seen God grant requests in ways that they never could have imagined. And you and I are guilty of the exact same arrogance in our lives. How many times in our lives have we said, God, if you would just do this for me, then I would know. Then I would trust you. Then I would believe. If you can just give me this thing that I'm asking for, if you can deliver me out of this circumstance, if you can save me from this situation, if you can provide this for me, then I'll know. Or maybe the classic line of many Christians, well, if I could just see Jesus personally, that would make the difference for me. The very same attitude for which Thomas is corrected. See, the problem for the Israelites wasn't that they didn't have enough information. The problem was the information they have didn't provide them with the answer that they wanted. 
What they wanted was the physical evidence of powerful armies and powerful nations in order to accomplish these very same things that God had promised them. But what they didn't want to do was trust that by God and God alone would they be granted the things that he had already promised them. When it came time for them to act upon the instruction of God in ways that seemed difficult or unlikely for them to understand, they just, they just stopped short of doing what he said. When they had power and strength, according to Judges chapter 1, what did they do with it? They put these people into captivity. Sure, they fought the Canaanites, but they did not drive them out. They settled and decided that they'd compromise by allowing the Canaanites to become neighbors and slaves. And again, God's primary concern here is not pragmatic, it's spiritual. One commentator said it this way, when the author of Judges repeats this line that they failed to drive them out, it is an accusation of God's people for covenant failure. They are like a surgeon who removes only part of the cancer Because even cancer has a right to grow and find fulfillment. Tolerance and suicide are congenial bedfellows, which is just a brutal line. In other words, the Israelites' tolerance of the Canaanites is what was leading them inevitably into spiritual decline. What they viewed as tolerance and maybe even compassion and grace was in reality a lack of faith in God's goodness in asking them to battle and a lack of faith in God's ability to grant them victory. And listen, brothers and sisters, though for us the battleground may be spiritual and not military, the same warning applies. That when we begin to tolerate and to excuse and to justify what God has expressly declared as wrong and dangerous, we do not get to attach his name to our actions. As we mentioned in the last series, to use the name of God to lend credence to something that he did not say and to attribute something to him that is inconsistent with what he's revealed about is the essence of taking his name in vain. We are using his name to justify our own actions and that's exactly what the Israelites had begun to do. It was an exercise in half-heartedness. They had essentially begun to view the one true God in the same light as their pagan neighbors had. God had become a means to an end, a good luck charm, a lucky rabbit's foot, rather than the purpose of their living and being. And even though they were still experiencing some level of success, humanly speaking, they had done so at the cost of their own faith and their own identity in God. And it was a trade that was going to cost them dearly and was going to haunt them for generations because of what it begins to say in chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And told you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you've not obeyed my voice. What is this you've done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides 
and their gods shall be a snare to you. In other words, the the people of Israel, their lack of faith in God's goodness and deliverance and their insistence on taking things into their own hands deprived them of the very good things that God had planned for them and revealed the folly of of depending on their own strength. In other words, they experienced what one social commentator referred to as the amazing punishment of getting what you wish for. God said, if this is what you want, it's yours. And if we were to just stop there, the lesson that we would take away from all of this would be the wrong one. Because we would hear all of this in legalistic terms where God's actions are dependent upon yours. Where God's goodness only extends as far as your faithfulness where God withholds something good because you haven't done enough good to receive it. But maybe the most amazing line that we have read this morning, even more amazing than the thumbs and the toes, is this line that we're given in chapter 2, verse 1, where God expressly says to them, I will never break my covenant with you. through all of their failure and through all of their doubts and through all of their sin, through their outright rejection and rebellion, so much rejection and rebellion that we're told that they left the altars there that were made to other gods. And by the way, those are the same altars that are going to be used later as the Israelites turn their worship to Baal. All of that happens later on because of what they chose not to do here. And yet God still says to them, I will never break my covenant with you. You see, ultimately, Judges is the story of God's continued faithfulness to a faithless people. And even as the tribe of Judah receives the most emphasis for its lack of faithfulness going forward, God was preparing a redeemer who would be born in the line of Judah. The lesson of this book is that God has an unbelievable ability to use the people we would least expect to accomplish the most incredible things that God only uses unfaithful people because unfaithful people are all that there are. And the wonder of that for you and for me is that regardless of what you have done and regardless of what marks your past and regardless of the sin struggles with which you are currently wrestling and the issues that you are currently facing, God does not look at your life and say, what am I supposed to do with this? Give me something I can use. No, in the very same way, he says to you and to me, I will not break my covenant with you. And the covenant that he has made with you was made perfectly through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That as we frequently say, when Jesus went to the cross to pay for your sins, he knew exactly what he was getting. And when you sin for the fifth or the hundredth or the thousandth time, God is still looking at you and saying, yes, I paid for that one too. What sin? It's already forgiven. Redemption is already yours. Right standing in my eyes is already yours. Perfect righteousness in the sight of God already belongs to you. As we talked about last week, you have brotherhood with Jesus Christ himself 
that the same term that the Father uses to refer to his own son, Jesus, he now applies to you and to me, not because we deserve it and not because we're faithful and not because we've held up our end of the bargain, but because he has time and time and time again and will continue to for all of eternity. But the only confidence that we have in that is if our confidence is in Jesus Christ. Because to the extent that you think that you are somehow going to earn your place before God, earn your standing before God, earn God's affection and earn God's blessing, what you are actually doing is turning your nose up at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. You're saying to Jesus, thanks but no thanks, I've got it. I appreciate you getting me started, I'll carry it on from here. And the revelation of this text is that without Jesus being the covenant-keeping, promise-fulfilling, blessing-bringing God that he is, we have no hope. But thankfully, because of his goodness and his grace, he remembers that we are dust. He knows our frailties and our failures, and he does not give up. He continues to pursue and to call, and to court, and to bring into his own family those who he would choose. See, the true hero in the book of Judges is not Deborah or Samson or Gideon. It's not even Joshua who's passed off from the scene. The true hero of this story is God himself, working through divine means and broken people to bring about the redemption and salvation of those who are faithful, faithless, including, by the way, you and me. And in the same way that we struggle with believing these things some 3,000 years later, God continues to remain faithful to us, just as he did to his covenant people. So find encouragement and blessing, brothers and sisters, that the same struggles that you face are the same struggles that were handled on the cross 2,000 years ago, perfectly, once and for all, by the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. And in him, we have confidence that he is a covenant-keeping God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the way that you reveal yourself to us in your word. And we thank you for texts of scripture that challenge our reading, challenge our comprehension and our understanding, things that challenge our assumptions and our presumptions about the way that the world works and the way that you work. But God, that in all of that, what you are ultimately revealing is that the story is about you. That the story is not primarily about good moral lessons or instructions that we need to learn, though there certainly may be those things involved. But what this really is, is the story of redemption of a God who has not given up on his people despite their faithlessness. And God, we pray that that would cause us to evermore place our faith in the only one deserving of our faith, your son, Jesus Christ. That in him we would find redemption and restoration and fulfillment and joy. And we thank you that you can and will do that through your Holy Spirit in our lives and that you're the only one who can do that. So God, do that work in us today. Help us to trust in you and we give you the praise and the honor and glory for it. Amen.